Good morning, church. You know, the book of Daniel is lots of different things. But what the book of Daniel really is, is a 12-chapter way to say yes and no all at the same time. That's what it is. It's a 12-chapter way of saying yes and no simultaneously all at once. For instance, if you happen to run into Daniel in ancient Babylon in the 6th century and you invited him to coffee and you sat down with him and you had a conversation with him about the predicament of he and his people, and if you asked him certain kinds of questions, you would, ex- you would expect these kinds of answers. For instance, Daniel, tell me, is your God really worthy of all joy and trust and obedience and allegiance? What's he going to say? Yes. Yes, but Daniel, but don't you think that the current predicament of your people, the land invaded, Jerusalem leveled to the ground, you taken as hostages back into Babylon. Don't you think that that, don't you think that shows the supremacy of the Babylonian gods over your God? No. Okay, but the question is, did your God know this was going to happen? Yes. And as a matter of fact, I'll take a weave even one step further. Not only did he know about it, he even predestined and predicted it would happen. Wait, so Daniel, are you saying, are you telling me that your God is an absolute sovereign control over history? Yes. Okay, but don't you think that there is anyone or someone or something that could somehow in some way undo God's plan for history? No and no. Right, okay, but don't you think, don't you think that sin and evil in the world calls God's power into question? And don't you think, don't you think that, that the current tragedies of the world prove that somehow, somehow prove that God's plan has come unraveled? No, I do not think that. So Daniel, that means you're saying that the tragedies of the world with all their blood and guts and horror, you're telling me that somehow, in some way, even those are under the sovereign hand of God. Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Fine. But does God have a plan for how he's going to fix the train wreck of the world? Is your God going to intervene ever in the space-time continuum? And is he, is he going to make all things be the way they ought to be? I thought you were never going to ask. That is exactly what he's going to do. God in human flesh will intervene. He is going to break into human history and he will establish his invincible, eternal, unthwartable, unconquerable, unshakable kingdom on this planet and he will rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. That is what's going to happen. Do you see? The book of Daniel is a 12-chapter way of saying yes and no all at the same time. And for the unforeseen future, for the undisclosed amount of time, the feast on the menu of this church on Sunday morning is going to be none other than the book of Daniel. Because my job as a pastor is to preach the word and to shepherd the sheep and to feed the flock and equip the saints and make disciples and to nourish your souls with the banquet of Holy Scripture. And one of the tasty options on the table to do that is none other than the prophetic entree, as it were, of the book of Daniel. And I know, I know that you know about the book of Daniel. You know about the lion's den. You know about the fiery furnace. You know about the towering metallic statue. You know about the severed or the disembodied hands scribbling graffiti on the wall. You know about kings who lose their minds. You know about winged leopards. You know all about these things. You know about this book. But the question is, do you know this book? Because this book is so much more than a fiery furnace and a lion's den. See, rather, what the book of Daniel is, is God's way of giving us holiness, hope, 
courage and perseverance by revealing his absolute undisputed dominion by which he governs everything in the world. You see, if Daniel has anything to say to us, and it has plenty to say, the thing that it most wants to say is that God is absolutely, perfectly sovereign over everything. And yeah, the book, if you've read it, you know the book is bizarre, but it is also captivatingly beautiful. And I just want you to know that we desperately need to hear the book of Daniel in the 21st century. This church needs to hear the book of Daniel in the 21st century. You know why? Because while I perceive that you are a humble and a sweet people, and already, even just being here since January, my heart is knit to your hearts in, in so many ways. I'm so grateful that you are my flock and that I get to be your shepherd. And I see Christ at work among you. I see Christ at work in your lives. It's yet, as your shepherd, I feel the weight of preaching on things that will move you to your next stage of maturity, both as individuals and as a church. And what I perceive is that what this church needs is a shot of theological adrenaline to the soul. I mean that. You see, I believe what this church needs is a devastating vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. What this church needs is God. To see God, to be exhilarated with God because I sense, I sense and I have been burdened by what I feel is a sense of mild spiritual apathy brooding over the church in America and maybe in some ways even over this church. A kind of dangerous spiritual limbo, a kind of fearful spiritual lukewarmness that's not too hot, it's not too cold, and it also ain't quite right either. In other words, I see so many positive, encouraging things God is doing in the church in America and in this church, and yet what I don't necessarily see or hear very often in the church in America, and maybe even in this church, what I don't necessarily hear or see very often is people who are captivated by the living God. Because what I hear people talk about in most churches is community and relationships and friendships and programs and a history together. And don't misunderstand, every church needs those things. We have to have those things too. Those are indispensable for a healthy church. And yet what I don't necessarily hear talked about are the glories of the living God. Daniel will help us. He will help us. God is what you need. God is what you're going to get. And the book of Daniel is the mechanism that's going to make that happen. So this morning is an intro, an overview, a survey, a tour through the theological amusement park known as the book of Daniel. So here we go. If you have notes, here's where we're headed. This morning, I want you to see, I want you to see three features Three features of the beautiful and bizarre book of Daniel required not only to understand the book, but to be transformed by the book. That's where we're going. Three features of the beautiful and bizarre book of Daniel required not only to understand the book, but to be transformed by the book. And so, number one, you must know the tragic history leading up to Daniel. You have to know, to understand this book, to be transformed by the book, you have to know the tragic history leading up to the book of Daniel. Because the thing is, if we don't have a sense of the history leading up to and culminating in the book of Daniel, we're going to feel like we started watching a movie halfway through the middle. Because you see, what we have to understand about the Bible, to, to make sense of the Bible, we have to remember that what it is not is a random collection of miscellaneous tales. No, the Bible is a drama. A theological drama. 
a divine play, a sacred script with a plot, a masterpiece of redemption unfolding in history. That is the Bible. There is a once upon a time in the beginning. There's a happily ever after in the new heavens and the new earth at the end. And there's this riveting plot unfolding in the middle, revealing what God is doing in human history. And just one scene in that play, a 75-year long scene, by the way, is the book of Daniel. And I believe Daniel wrote this book with his own hand over that 75 period. Think about this, think about this. Daniel only wrote one book. He, he authored one book in his career. And yet he took 75 years to write it. It was a life's work. Without question, one of the most significant books written in human history. And I want you to notice something. Look at chapter one for, for a second. Chapter one Verses 1 and 2, Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, because it's there in the first chapter, in the first verse of the first chapter, that Daniel orients us. He situates us where we're at, what's happening in the context of the book, both historically, geographically, and even spiritually. Look what he says. In the third year of the kingdom of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged against it. Now you see it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he's reigning kind of, sort of, in Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to the, the country, completely surrounds the city of Jerusalem, brings the, brings the entire country to its knees, which means there is a new sheriff in town, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he describes here. And this, you have to understand, this is devastating in every possible way, because if you were in Israel in that day, you would be saying, how did this happen? How did we get here? I mean, what, I mean what, what we have to understand, what transpired in the decades leading up to this moment that explains how, Babel, how Nebuchadnezzar could just waltz into the city and take God's people captive like it was nothing. How did we get here? And you know, you know that every drunk began with a single drink. Every adultery happened with a lustful look, and you have to understand Israel's destruction here in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar barged into the city, it began centuries before this. Because get this, way, way back, 800 years before this, when the Israelites were moping around in the wilderness, Moses said these words. Moses told them that if they flirted with idols and if they got in bed with false gods, that God was going to have to destroy them, and he did. Listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 28. I think they are in your notes. Moses warns, again, 800 years before Daniel chapter 1, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, Yahweh your God, Yahweh will bring a nation to you from afar, from the end of the earth, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will besiege you in your towns and bring your high and fortified walls in which you trusted to come down throughout your land. And Yahweh will scatter you among all the peoples. And from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth and among those nations you shall find no rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but Yahweh will give you trembling of heart, failing of eyes, and a soul filled with despair. You can't say he didn't warn him. And you would think, you would think that eight hundred years of warning in advance would be enough to persuade them to uh, persuade them to avoid the noose of idolatry and spiritual prostitution and for a while for a while the land of Israel sang with the glory of Yahweh didn't it especially with the reigns of David and Solomon 400 years before Daniel that was the golden age of the kingdom but something happened to them something changed in them Something dark and deep and disturbing. 
unbelievable promise and potential that ended in self-destruction and misery. And get this, you know the history. Israel sank deeper and deeper into idolatry and plunged themselves deeper into the cesspool of spiritual prostitution. And as they did, God sent prophet after prophet to warn them and to win them and to woo them that if they did not return to Yahweh, they would be destroyed. Began with Jeremiah, Micah, Joel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, finally Ezekiel, every single one of them blowing the trumpet to return to Yahweh as the treasure of their souls, but every single time the people resisted. And meanwhile, all this time, a monster stirs in the east. Babylon, like a sleeping giant waiting in the wings to seize their opportunity to be the heavyweight champions of the world, and they did it. Rising up in 612 BC, they crushed, they crushed former world powers like Egypt and Assyria, like insects on the pavement. And by the time they barged into Jerusalem in 605 BC, they were like a freight train with no brakes. And in three months, they brought the entire city of Jerusalem to its knees. And in 586 BC, they leveled the city to the ground. And what you did in that day, when you took a city captive, you rounded up the best of the best of the city, including the king, you put them in chains, and you take them to Babylon to reculturalize them, absorb them. They lose their identity. They disappear off the face of the map forever. Most countries, not Israel, but most. So you can't say that God didn't warn them. For 800 years, God told them to not touch the hot stove of idolatry. And they touched it again and again and again and again until finally they became calloused and desensitized to God's warning until God, until they forced God's hand to send them to the gulags of Babylon. And the thing is, if you were living in Israel in that day, if you were among those people in chains being taken to Babylon, you, you would be thinking, game over, man. This is it. This is it. We, we, we've pushed it too far. We've pushed it too far. There, there's, there, we, it's gone over the edge. There's no coming back from this. Living in Babylonian slums, enforced immigration, the land is taken, the king is in prison, the covenant is broken, all the plans and hopes and dreams we had ever envisioned for our people have vanished like smoke in the wind and disappeared like tears in the rain. Which is exactly why the book of Daniel would have been a shot of adrenaline right into Israel's soul. Because then they would read this book and they would see, then they would see, then they would see God's plan is not over. God's plan for them is not over. It is the opposite of over. God still had every intention of fulfilling every, every promise he ever made to his people, which means Daniel meets a people who have hit rock bottom in their lives and to show them that the plan of God to send the Messiah and to conquer the world and make all things be the way they ought to be remains profoundly unshaken. And no, it's true, you are not the people of Israel, and maybe you haven't hit rock bottom in your lives, but you know, you know, don't you, why it is part of the reason why God gave us the history of Israel? You know why. See, this isn't just historical facts. These are warnings. This isn't just history. This is help us. This is help for us to not repeat their history. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 in your notes. Paul speaking about the history of Israel. Notice very carefully what he says. These things happened as examples for us in order that, get this, I love his purpose, in order that we would not crave evil things as they craved evil things. 
These things happen to them as examples for us, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here's his application. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't you dare underestimate the power of sin and don't you dare overestimate your power to resist it. See, those who forget the history of Israel are doomed to repeat it, but you don't have to repeat that history. Why? Because if you are in Christ, you have every power available to you through his word to put sin and temptation to death. Which brings us to the second feature of the book of Daniel, number two. You must know the theology of Daniel. To not only understand this book, but to be transformed by this book, you must know the theology in the book of Daniel. I don't know why you would do this, but if you only had or only read the book of Daniel for six months or to a year, which wouldn't be a terrible idea, but if that's what you did, the question is, how would that shape your theology? What would that produce in you if you decided to spend an entire year reading nothing but the book of Daniel? What would it produce in you? What would it transform in you? What would it change in you? Because I'll just tell you, you read the book of Daniel like that and you're going to become a particular kind of Christian. There is going to be a particular kind of holiness and hope and courage and perseverance produced in your life because of the book of Daniel. And again, the reason for that is because this is not just a lion's den and a furnace. No, this is a book of theology, a book of profound theology, because as we all know, true, authentic, robust theology is the foundation of all authentic worship and life transformation. In other words, if you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want to scrape the barnacles of, of sin, the barnacles and plaque of sin off of your soul and grow in displaying the image of Jesus Christ, and I know you do, profound theological truth savored in the soul is the way that happens. And in the book of Daniel, there are three doctrines, at least three, there are more than three, but there are at least three doctrines that are just life transforming. And these are in your notes, number one, Daniel displays for us the doctrine of God. Daniel displays for us the doctrine of God. You need to know, and you will see this as time goes on, that Daniel is profoundly a book about God. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar, important to the plot line to be sure, but they're just supporting actors in the play. The star of the show on center stage is God and what he is doing in human history. I want you to consider, for instance, just the names by which God is called in the book of Daniel. You could, you could make a devotion, quiet time schedule, just meditating on the names of God in the book of Daniel, and it would be enough to nourish your soul for months. Notice the list the God of the heavens, the great God, the God of gods and Lord of kings, the living one of eternity, the king of heavens, the Lord of the heavens, the living God, the most high, the ancient of days. Think about it. Daniel drives home the reality that the God that you worship, the God to whom you give your allegiance, he is the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God of the universe. That's a pretty sweet quiet time if you think about it. And speaking of the sovereignty of God, that is the central message of the entirety of the book. The book of Daniel is a book that portrays supremely that God is sovereign and rules human history with absolute ease. You read the book of Daniel and you'll realize there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. There's no such a thing as luck or chance. There's nothing random in the universe. No, all there is is God and he governs everything that comes to pass. Look at chapter two, verse 21 in your notes. Daniel 2, 21, this is an incredible verse. It says that God is the one who changes times and seasons. 
What does that mean? God changes times and seasons. What, what, what is he saying? It means God governs the shifting of entire civilizations. That's what it means. God rules history. The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, the United States of America, the Dark Ages, the Great Depression, America, or um, all of human history is ruled and governed and guided and controlled by the living God. But the verse goes on. It says that God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. Think about it. He removes kings. He sets up kings, giving wisdom to the wise and understanding to those who have insight. Think about it. God determines every king and ruler and tyrant and president in history. Nebuchadnezzar, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and whoever it is who sits in the White House next, whether we like them or we don't, they are there by his decree. Look at Dan, Daniel 4.35 in your notes. One of the most breathtaking verses on the sovereignty of God. This is incredible. And all those who dwell on the earth are like nothing. But he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Make no mistake this morning. The only person in the universe who has absolute free will to do what he pleases is the God who spoke galaxies into existence. See, at the end of the day, Daniel understands, he understands that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So that's the question. What does come into your minds when you think about God? Do you fear God? Do you tremble before God? Do you love God? Do you hope in God? Do you delight in God? Do you trust God? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? What I really want to know is, are you exhilarated by God as the highest treasure of your soul? Because I just want you to know that is the very meaning of life. And if you read closely, that's what Daniel is going to produce in you. The second doctrine found in the book of Daniel. Daniel displays for us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Daniel displays for us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's right, Christ is in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because think, just remember, you, you remember, don't you, the favorite title of Christ used in the Gospels? Do you remember what it is? 84 times in the Gospels, he calls himself the Son of Man. And yet, that's the title that seems the most ambiguous. That, that seems to be the title that seems the least controversial, right? I mean, what does it even mean to be the Son of Man? Well, very interestingly, here, here's the question. Do you remember what it is that got Christ killed? I mean, the thing that really pushed the religious leaders over the ed edge to murder him in cold blood. Do you remember what it was? It was after they arrested him. He is in custody. The high priest is doing his bad cop thing, interrogating Christ. And listen to the question he asks him. This comes from Mark 14. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to what he says. The high priest asks him, he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In other words, are you the Messiah? Are you the king who's going to rule all things? To which Christ replies, I am. And you shall see, here it is, you shall see the Son of Man coming with us, sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And when he said that, what did the high, high priest do? He tore his robes and he shouted to his comrades and he said, do you see? He has blasphemed. What do you think? 
what did they do? They all condemned him as worthy of death. He called himself the Son of Man, and they killed him for it. Why? Because, because when he claimed to be the Son of Man, he was referring directly to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Messiah was called the Son of Man. Look at your notes, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I was looking in the visions of the night, and with the clouds of the heavens, here it is, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, notice, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and tongues shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Do you see why claiming to be that was so infuriating to the religious leaders? It makes sense now, doesn't it? To claim to be the son of man was to claim that the nations, the world, the universe all existed to worship you. That you were the centerpiece of all human history. When Christ claimed to be the son of man, get this, he was saying in no uncertain terms, I am your king, I am your God, and you exist to worship me. And you probably know this, but binge-watching our favorite shows on Netflix is kind of the thing to do nowadays. I'm not so certain that's very nutritious for our souls, but binge-watching the glory of Christ is. So you have to understand that the power for every temptation, for every heartache, for every anxiety for every fear, the ultimate center, all curing cure to those things is to binge watch the glory of Christ from the pages of scripture and Daniel is going to help us to do that. Doctrine number three. Doctrine number three from the book of Daniel. Daniel unfolds for us the blueprints for the future. Daniel unfolds for us the blueprints for the future. In other words, that's called eschatology. Eschatology, and you've heard of eschatology, and all eschatology is is a really fancy, kind of long way of saying that God has given us a backstage pass to see the future, to, to see how the world is going to end. Think about it. We know how the world is going to end. That's crazy. We know it. Like those weird people who were obsessed with Socrates or no, uh, uh, um, oh, whatever that Greek guy was that predicted the end of the world. He was a total fake. We actually know the end of the world. You see, Daniel is what scholars call apocalyptic literature. Have you ever heard that term before? Apocalyptic literature. Daniel is apocalyptic, which pretty much means that when you read it, you feel a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. You enter a strange world with bizarre encounters, strange beasts, angelic beings, weird creatures, talking horns, monsters with metal teeth, and it's freakish and odd, and it's all so dreamlike, and yet, and yet what we tend to forget is that the whole purpose of apocalyptic literature is to give us a glimpse of reality. Apocalyptic literature is to tear the fabric of physical reality and give us a glimpse of divine reality, of how things actually are in the world. For instance, look at Daniel 7, 19 through 21 in your notes. This is totally bizarre. I'm I'm giving it out of context, so it would make more sense in context, but look what it says. Daniel says that I desired to know about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. It was extremely terrifying, and it had teeth of iron and claws of bronze. It was devouring and crushing, and the rest with its feet it was trampling down. And concerning the ten horns which were on its head, another horn came up, and from before it three horns were ripped out, and that horn had eyes and a mouth speaking great things, and its appearance was greater than the others." I was looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and it was overpowering them. 
You read that, and you think there's no way. There's no way that that verse right there, that text can have any relevance for my life. I mean, I've got deadlines. I've got kids to raise. I've got bills to pay. I mean, I've got my, not to mention my own personal struggles and sins. How is that text going to help me on Monday morning at my desk at work? To which I say, be very careful. Be very careful with that. Because in our vending machine, Google search, instant gratification culture where everything has a push-button convenience, we tend to think that because it's not simple, it ain't practical. We tend to think that because it might require a little bit of mental exertion that it is not helpful for my life, and yet that is exactly why prophecy exists. It is designed to be practical. Mark my words, the CGI, cartoon-like nature of apocalyptic writing will, will transform your lives in ways you never even imagined possible. I mean, mark my words, you get the end times, understand them the best we can, anyway, and you will be wiser with your time. You get the end times, and you will be more generous with your finances, (laughs) You get the end times and you will be more biblical in your priorities. You get the end times and you will be more loving in your relationships. You get the end times and you will be more urgent and courageous with the gospel. And you want all those things, right? You want to be wiser with your time. You want to be more generous with your resources. You want to be more loving in your relationships. You want to be more biblical in your priorities. You want to be more courageous with the gospel. I hope... Daniel will help you. Why? Because knowing the finish line of history frees and liberates us to live radical lives recklessly abandoned for Jesus Christ. Finally, the third feature of the book of Daniel. The third feature of the book of Daniel, you must know the structure of Daniel. You must know the structure of the book of Daniel. Because I don't know how much you know about French people. I only know one thing about French people, and it's what I'm going to tell you right now. But the thing about French people is that when it comes to food, they value two things. They value two things when it comes to food. Form and content. Taste and presentation. In other words, they're not just concerned with how it tastes, they're concerned with how it what? how it looks. In other words, picture a caramel apple pie or a mango lime cheesecake or whatever it is your favorite dessert is. And, and you have to understand that, that from the French perspective, if it is beautifully and artistically presented, there's a 95% probability that it's going to taste absolutely incredible. And you see that form and content, taste and presentation, that is exactly the book of Daniel. It's exactly the book of Daniel. Here's what I mean. The book of Daniel is not a straightforward book. What I mean by that is it's not arranged, presented on the table. It's not arranged chronologically. It's not. It's arranged thematically, deliberately out of order. Why? Why? Because Daniel is pulling a Frenchism. He wants us to see something in the presentation of the book. Because if chronologically the chapters should go, chapters 1 through 4, then 7, then 8, then 5, then 9, then 6, then 10 through 12. That would be chronological. You don't have to memorize that. That's just to let you know that it's deliberately out of order. But you see how it is arranged. The presentation of the book, the wrapping of the book is beautiful and artistic and loaded with theological significance. Look look at the outline in your notes. This is incredible stuff. You notice, you notice that like any other book, there is a prologue and an epilogue. There's a beginning and an end. You see that? Which makes sense, right? You've got to have a beginning, you've got to have an end. But you notice, you notice very carefully, the book is divided up into four visions. Do you see that? Four visions is divided up. One at each end, two in the middle. And you also know that, notice that between the first two visions, up at the top, between the first two visions are two accounts of persecution. 
The fiery furnace in chapter three and the lion's den in chapter six, in which both cases God delivers in a miraculous and supernatural way. But you also notice, don't you, that between those two accounts of persecution are two narratives of when humbled, arrogant, narcissistic kings get punished by God because they treated God like he was no big deal. Chapter four, he inflicts Nebuchadnezzar with temporary dementia and insanity eating grass, drooling, and naked like an animal. Chapter five, which is decades, decades later, by the way, he sends a floating, dismembered, disembodied hand to scribble graffiti, a message of judgment against the Babylonian kingdom. And that night, Belshazzar is killed and the reign of Babylon is over. But then your eyes drift down. And you notice that between the last two visions, between the last two visions are Daniel's grief and his prayer for his people, in which both cases God sends angelic visitors to comfort him and to explain the future. But what I really, really need you to notice are the two visions right there in the middle. Because those two chapters, those are literally the centerpiece of the entire book. That's the gravitational center of the entire book. Put it, put it this way, it's the entree. It's the steak on the plate. And all the other chapters surrounding those two visions are the garnish and the garlic mashed potatoes and the steamed vegetables and the piece of pie and the cup of coffee all designed to accentuate and to complement the flavor of the entree in the middle of the plate, which is chapter seven and chapter eight. And the reason why those two chapters, those two visions are so significant because in those chapters are one of the most, if not the most, clear presentations of God's plan for the future, which includes the future, global, invincible kingdom of Jesus Christ where he rules the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. That's chapter seven and eight, which means those are the chapters most filled with hope for the people of Israel and for us. So did you see what what I mean here? Taste and presentation. Form and content. And you might be thinking, okay, I I see what you're saying. I see the structure, but but how is that supposed to help me? How, How is that relevant for me? How is this going to help me, Jerry? What is the message that is declared from the structure? And that is exactly the question you should ask. Because Daniel arranges the book as he does, deliberately out of order to creatively and artistically present the most important truth in the universe. Are you ready? Here it is. God humbles the proud. God saves his people. God has a plan. God will win. That's the message. That's why Daniel presents the book the way that he does. To communicate, God humbles the proud. God saves his people. God has a plan. God will win. That is the book of Daniel. So God is going to use this book in this church. Of that, I am sure. Because what we need, what we need in our flimsy, kind of wimpy, 21st century entitled mentality is a staggering vision of a glory God God with an unstoppable sovereign and Daniel is going to give that to us. Now, finally, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I'm going to close with eight reasons why I'm preaching the book of Daniel. Eight reasons why I'm preaching the book of Daniel. I feel like I need to justify this to you. I feel like I need to explain this to you, why we're doing Daniel and not something else. Because because we could be doing anything, right? Why not Romans? Why not one of the Gospels? Why not something really nitty-gritty and practical like Proverbs or James? I mean, give us something here. And yet, I really feel that what our church needs to help advance us to the next stage of effectiveness for the Great Commission is something both beautiful and bizarre. So here they are, eight reasons, eight reasons why I'm preaching on the book of Daniel. This will go fast. Number one, Daniel is worth reading, studying, and preaching for its sheer entertainment value. (laughs) 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with being entertained as long as we're entertained by the right things. And it is full of entertainment. There's irony, there's drama and suspense. I mean, it fills the book. There are lions, leopards with four heads, bears who eat ribs and do circus tricks. There's psychedelic dreams, towering metallic statues, severed hands scribbling graffiti on walls. There are horns that have eyes and blaspheme God. I mean, this book is absolutely, this book has everything. And this book will do many things for you and to you. It will confuse you some. It will perplex you a little bit. It will thrill you. It will exhilarate you. And in many ways, it will even rebuke you. But mark my words, one thing it will never do. You will never be bored. Number two. Daniel is worth reading, studying, and preaching for its theological value. It's worth preaching for its theological value because as I said earlier, the single greatest contribution that Daniel has to the Bible and to your lives is its towering vision of the sovereignty of God. You see, Daniel is going to help you to see that in God's universe, there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. There's no such thing as luck or chance. That's a figment of the human imagination. There's nothing random in the universe. Every bullet fired, every roll of the dice, every king who reigns is appointed by the God of Daniel. Number three, Daniel is worth reading, studying, and preaching because in New Testament prophecy, prophecy in the New Testament, Daniel is referred to more than any other book. That means if we care about what the New Testament says, we should care about what Daniel says because so much of what the New Testament says, especially about the future, comes from and flows from the book of Daniel. So what that means, if you want to understand the New Testament better, you should want to understand Daniel better, which means Daniel is a gateway to the New Testament. Number four. I'm preaching on Daniel because it gives us a theology of politics. It gives us a theology of politics, not that it tells us what party to belong to or who to vote for, but what it does do is it helps us view politics and politicians through a profoundly theological lens. You see, God is the one who raises up politicians. He is the one who removes politicians. They are where they are because God put them where they are and they stay where they are until God removes them from where they are, which is a jolting reminder to us that we should neither trust the government nor fear the government, but we should trust and fear the one who rules the government. Number five. I am preaching on the book of Daniel because if there is any book that will help us not cower in fear before the culture, it is the book of Daniel. Because so many people have rage and fear against the culture, or against public school, or against Democrats, or against social media, as if those were the real evil in the world. They're not. The greatest problem in the world is not outside of you. It is in you through the sin that is lurking in your souls. And Daniel and his comrades, think about Daniel and his comrades, confiscated, taken to Babylon, enrolled in the Royal Babylonian Academy. They wore pagan clothes. They spoke a pagan language. They ate pagan food. They were given pagan names. They were educated in the Babylonian independent public school district. They were trained, they were indoctrinated, and they were attempted to be brainwashed by the Babylonian government, and they came out of that completely unscathed. So what this means is, what this means, the book of Daniel will help us be in the world and not of the world as bold, lion-hearted proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six, I am preaching on the book of Daniel because if there is any book that could and should inspire bulletproof courage in a culture of hostility, it is the book of Daniel. Whether you're facing 
a fiery furnace, the teeth of lions, psychotic kings, a gun to your head, a, co- a hostile coworker, or a belligerent family member, Daniel. Daniel will not only give you swashbuckling stories that, 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 that entertain you, but even more than that, it will give you theology that will help you fear God rather than men. Number seven. I'm preaching on the book of Daniel because I want you to learn eschatology. I want you to learn about the end times. I mean, you may not know this, but 27% of the Bible is prophecy. 27% of the Bible is prophecy, which means God wants you to know this stuff. And if you do know this stuff, you will be more stable. You will be more secure. If you do know this stuff, you will be more equipped to live a radical, recklessly abandoned life for the glory of Jesus Christ, which brings us to number eight. Finally, I am preaching on the book of Daniel because I want the mouth of your soul to water for King Jesus. See, my greatest passion in the world for you, the thing that drives everything that I do I labor and do what I do to help you see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Because you have to understand the goal of Christianity is not merely to make you a better person. The goal of Christianity is not merely to help you turn over a new leaf or to improve your personal quality of life. No, the aim, the goal, the purpose, the very definition of what it means to be a Christian is to be supremely satisfied in Jesus Christ as the highest treasure of your soul. That's where we're going. So that's an intro, an overview, a survey, a tour through the book of Daniel, and I cannot wait, and next week we begin in chapter one, and we will watch the drama unfold. Let's pray. O living God, and ancient of days, and King of kings, and Lord of lords, we worship you, and we acknowledge your transcendence, and your towering majesty, and your comprehensive, meticulous sovereignty over all things. And we marvel, Lord, we marvel that you are not a God who is out there on Mars or Saturn or some other galaxy far away. No, in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to you. You are with us and by us and in us. And, oh, Lord, we want to know you better. We want to know you more. We want to treasure you more. We want to fear you more. We want to be transformed by the power of your word through the enabling of the spirit. We want to live lives that put you on display. Help us, O Lord. Please use Daniel in our lives to solidify us, to stabilize us. Help us to see your sufficiency. Help us to see your sovereignty. Help us to see that you alone satisfy the soul. Help us, O Lord. All we want to do is be instruments in your hands to make an impact for the glory of your Son in whose matchless and glorious name we pray. Amen.